Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. This is the first episode of season seven, and I'm wicked grateful you tuned in. And yes, I said welcome to For a Living. I did not say welcome to studs. That's right, my friends. I've done, gone, and changed the name of the thing. And if you want to know why I changed the name, you can pop over and listen to the season seven trailer. In fact, you know, I would urge you to listen to that even if you don't care what the name of the podcast is that you're listening to. But for now, all I'll say is that the name change, it's the right thing to do. And hey, if you've been a loyal listener to this program, and you're attached to the name or to the inspiration for this podcast, my man, Studs Turkle, what can I say? I'm with you. But we'll move forward together. Change is good. Yo, especially in these dark times, change is good. And listen, I can't even imagine how I might have made it through these dark times were it not for the friendship of my guest today. Benjamin Rubloff is kicking off our season devoted to the working lives of artists. Where do I start with Benjamin? Oi. Well, let's start here. I love Benjamin Rubloff. I really love him. He is kind and clever and compassionate, and he may well be the best man I know. Benjamin is a gifted chef, a soulful pianist, a handyman, a craftsman. He's a world-class parent. He's the best friend a fella could ask for. And he simply must be one of the best art teachers in the world. I'll be honest with you, his omnicompetence would be dreadfully annoying if he weren't so damn lovely. Now, I could have suckered him on last season during which we explored the working lives of educators. And while he's an educator to the core... I love, love, love to listen to him talk about art. But I'll confess here that I was reluctant to invite him to a recorded conversation, both because I feared the format wouldn't appeal to him and because I feared that nothing could really capture the energy, the engagement, and the enthusiasm that he brings. And while I'm confessing things, I might as well confess that Benjamin and I sat down to record this thing, and it went all sorts of cattywampus. It was like the most awkward first date ever. And like a half hour in, we just stopped. We uncorked a bottle of wine, and we talked about how like no single conversation could possibly encapsulate our long and beautiful friendship. And empowered by that, We tried to get back on mic and start over, but I think the whole awkwardness thing was so exhausting that we just gave up, poured a martini, and promised each other that we'd do it a week later. Now, this was actually the first aborted conversation in the history of this podcast, and it happened with one of my closest pals. The experience was actually really interesting. You know, it raised a lot of questions about what I was hoping to do with this season with artists. It was, as they say, a happy little accident. 
And luckily, a week or two later, Benjamin graciously got back on mic with me. So there. Now you know. You know, if you're an artist, a latent artist, an aspiring artist, an art lover, or, or just someone seeking to bring some language to the problems and the promises of art, look no further than Benjamin Rubloff. You're going to want to thank me for bringing him into your life. Now, no need to thank me, of course. This is indeed very much my pleasure. That said, you're always welcome to get in touch, send me some love. Hey, I'll take all the love I can take these days. All my contact information and social media links are in the show notes. But if you really, really want to thank me, please tell a friend or two about this podcast. Tell them to tune in. Maybe send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you really, really, really want to thank me, <laughs> head over to my Patreon page and support my explorations of working lives. I link to that in the show notes also. I offer some nice rewards for your support. And I'm really grateful for the kind and supportive community I have over at Patreon. So if you have the means to give and you like to support independent creators, please consider becoming a patron of For a Living, which is not called studs. Still getting used to it. It's going to take a little time. Hey, whether you're a patron or not, I got something of a treat for you. As you might have heard, I'm composing, singing, and playing piano on most of the episodes this season. I'm using the words of my guest and the feeling we generate in the conversation to guide my songwriting process. I'm going to append a new song to the end of each episode. And while the initial vision was just me rocking solo piano and vocal, I managed to cajole some friends and family to play and sing with me. So do this. Listen closely today. Stay tuned till the end and then dive into the first song I ever wrote and recorded. A song about a conversation I had with this contemporary artist, Benjamin Rubloff, who I love. So here we go, kicking off season seven. Please join me in conversation with Benjamin Rubloff. You ready to do this, buddy? Yeah. All right. So I get the sense that talking about painting is a whole lot more like dancing about cooking than it is like singing about dancing. <laughs> I also have the sense that left to your own devices, you might not suffer the indignity of talking about painting with this bald buffoon. <laughs> but you're a loyal friend, my friend, and this is wicked exciting for me. So Benjamin Rubloff, welcome to For a Living. Thank you so much for being here with me. How do you describe what you do? Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. So I make paintings that are based on things that I find. As I wander around the city, I photograph what I think of as situations in urban landscapes. So it could be torn billboards or graffiti or kinds of urban situations that I'm exploiting for their poetic potential. 
they could be fragments, they could be allegories, they could be traces of the way in which uh, we occupy space and the way in which the city changes. For the last few years, I've been making paintings that are slow, deliberate transcriptions of the speedy gestures that graffiti writers write around the city. I use like everyday camera, just my phone camera. I go around and I collect what I think of as found paintings. And then I, I very slowly recreate these gestures that others have made in a way that connects these everyday kind of markers of urban life that connects them to a history of painting. So there, it's a kind of conceptual art practice, but very much involved with just quotidian life and being in the city. Yes, and I strongly suspect that we will investigate some of the quotidian dimensions of your work. I'm also reasonably certain that we'll dive into some of the metropolitan inspiration of it all. But before we do, I hope you would be so kind to, if only for our listeners, offer a sense of how it is that you found yourself on the painter's path. I guess that's, you know, that's kind of a challenging question because in art today, very few people who we would identify as painters identify as painters because of the interdisciplinary nature of contemporary art. And, you know, I, 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 I make paintings, but I also make photographs and I also am involved in writing and some printmaking and things like that. But there is something about a studio practice and the history of painting and working in that tradition and with that specific rhetoric that excites me. I guess I kind of wonder, were you a creative young man? Was this always sort of like in your worldview, in your approach to life? Like when you reflect on young Benjamin Rubloff, was there always that need to create? Yeah. You know, when you're a, a teenager, I was interested in art, but I was also kind of a malcontent as many of the other kids who ended up going into art were, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, so, so I was always creatively inclined. It was not encouraged to go to art school or maybe it wasn't allowed. So I went off to liberal arts school to study sculpture. I did not quite appreciate, we could say, the sort of tact that this sculpture professor at this particular university took. So I dropped out of school. <laughs> well, there were other reasons for dropping out. Like, but, every, like every good artist at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I said, screw it. This is not interesting to me. And I left. And I worked as a community organizer. And then I ended up coming back into the arts through playing music. I used to play jazz piano quite a lot and through writing. And there was, you know, I think when I was finishing my undergraduate studies, I was convinced that I was going to be a writer. And I sat every day, you know, every morning for two hours practicing that discipline of writing stories. You know, the writing was really rich and I loved the writing, even though the process was really painful sometimes. But I kept hearing that my stories never did anything or went anywhere. It was all just language. And so in a way, it made sense that I would move towards a more 
atmospheric kind of creative endeavor. And then strangely enough, you know, I had a job playing piano at a bar in Spain. It's like a dream job. If a dream job, you know, didn't involve very much money at all. I just played the piano every night at this jazz bar. But then I got an injury that sort of redirected things towards something that was less physically and technically strenuous. And I kind of made a deal with myself that I would give up piano if I could get over the hand injury to where I could really paint and come back to painting, which is something that I'd done since, since I was 15 or something like that. In thinking that it might inform our discussion heretofore, may I ask you a potentially boring question about influence? Yeah, sure. Can you share a writer or two that made you feel grounded and made you feel compelled to put pen to paper? I mean, back then, it was certainly Raymond Carver, Tobias Wolf. I mean, really, Raymond Carver was the big inspiration for me, the most important figure. And whose sound were you chasing when you sat down at a piano? Oh, Bill Evans. Um, but I <laughs> could never quite... But, you know, the th- I mean, the thing about both of them is there's a kind of, there's a kind of spaciousness in that kind of work. Right, the Raymond Carver stories are incredible, and they 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 turn ever so gently when they reach their climax, right? And they're so subtle, and they're not flowery, right? It's really direct. And Bill Evans too. I mean, they're they're endlessly sophisticated the, the way he voices harmonies. But there's like there's not a lot of speed, and there's not like a ton of syncopation. It's really about harmony and spaciousness. You could tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that among the things that Bill Evans mastered at the piano was making sophisticated choices. Mm-hmm. There were other people who might have been more like technically proficient. Perhaps there were people who, you know, had like heavier chops. But I went through a Bill Evans phase inspired by you when we first met, actually, when you were living at Gneisenau Strasse. Maybe the first or second year we met and became friends, I took a bit of a dive down the Bill Evans rabbit hole. And he's got a language that I... I know I don't speak, but it's a beautiful language, right? And it has something to do with his choices. And I'm curious about your choices. Like, how do you, in your practice, choose subject material? How do you choose projects to work on? Well, you know, probably most artists, or certainly the artists that I tend to be interested in artists are really visual artists are really archivists I think so we collect anything that we find that is potentially interesting for any number of reasons right so this kind of process of collecting and then you know if if we're thinking about larger 
thematic arcs, right? Or we're working in a series. So if you're working in a series, you're creating a body of work that you're choosing to focus. And everything that I choose to focus on has been something that I've kind of sat with and had some space to incubate, usually for a couple of years. It's usually the case that I photograph things kind of incessantly. You know, I probably take 3,000 photographs a year, which is not that many photographs, but, you know. And then I periodically just go through and and move things into collections or print things out and lay them out on tables and see what how things are communicating and what's emerging as an idea. And then, you know, there's a process, which is always a pretty difficult process when you come to the end of something, of figuring out what's kind of next. And then often it's looking through things that I've been thinking about or maybe sort of not fully consciously pursuing, but being attuned to in some way. That it's, it's emerging through the collection. It sounds like a lot of it has to do with really listening to yourself carefully and compassionately and sort of getting a sense of where your energies go, where your mind goes, where your thoughts go. Is that close? You can say no, I'm comfortable, if the answer is that's not it. First of all, I, th- I think I'm very, I'm very skeptical of the idea that it comes from me, right? This, you know, this, this idea that it comes from this deep place of, you know, an expressive space in myself, because I think it comes more in, in the position of sort of a curatorial way or a kind of collector or a mirror kind of notion of things. But yeah, at the same time, there is a way in which you have to sit with things and see what feels like it has feet and that speaks your language, that feels like it's significant, that feels poignant at the time, whether it's in the context of what's happening in culture or the context of one's own life. There's a lot of good idea. The problem is never <laughs> like not having enough ideas right. or good ideas. It's finding something that you can really commit to and explore that you think will take you somewhere, will take you somewhere further, somewhere you haven't maybe quite been, but then not so far away that it feels like, is this really my, my thing? Right, right, right. right. Well, I guess to push into it a little bit, albeit carefully, since you have the experience and the savvy and the language to pursue a number of different paths or projects, I find myself wondering how you arrive at decisions around what it is that you're going to pursue now? Mm. Well, you know, like right now I'm starting some new work. I think think I'm coming to the end of a body of work I've been working on for two and a half years. 
And since last summer, I started sort of while I was finishing things up, trying out some other things, getting some things started and just seeing what takes and not really knowing exactly what it will be and where it will go. And then eventually, in the best case scenario, it, it sort of clarifies itself. So how does it do that exactly? Like, can you talk to me about that best case scenario when after having conscientiously, artfully explored different concepts and strategies, and in doing so, determining what matters to you? Like, I wonder what it feels like when you make a decision to commit to a project or a subject that you might well be deeply engaged with for a substantial period of time. Well, I think it's a moment of elation and excitement in the studio where you think, oh, (laughs) this might really go, this is exciting. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, of course, doubt comes in. Right. And, you know, the best case scenarios are, are the ones in which doubt gets crowded out by necessity. So the work that I'm, that I'm coming to the end of was made out of necessity. I mean, I am a representational painter. I work from photographic sources. I've become increasingly an abstract painter, but I still work representationally from photographic sources. And the whole way that this series of works happened was I wanted to show this other body of work, which was sort of conceptual and leaning, leaning in towards the history of abstraction. And I wanted to show something else abstract with it. And I thought, well, how do I make an abstract painting? (laughs) I'm like a guy who paints, you know, architecture or images from the media or various kinds of structures that I find in the city and so I kind of, again, I'd, I'd been collecting pictures of graffiti kind of close up, looking at how they engage with surface and mark making and these ideas that are, you know, central to issues of painting and painting's history. And so then I, because it was kind of a necessity, it was a solo show and I was, I wanted to produce new work. And so it kind of took, it's much harder to, to make those decisions when there isn't a deadline happening. How much does that moment of elation and jubilation when you feel like you might have worked hard to stumble upon something that could be really valuable to yourself and to other people? Like you found uh, an artistic motive or uh, a subject that like, it just matters to you. Like, how much does that feeling motivate you to, like, get your butt back in the studio and do it again? It lasts for, like, a day. <laughs> it's literally, like, you. I've been in the studio for four hours and things are taking and I'm excited and I work late and I think, this is it. Yeah. And then I come back the next day in the studio and I go, (laughs) or maybe, you know, and so I try not to be too tied to it. 
Richard Diebenkorn had a great set of, I guess these were notes that he had on in, in his studio pinned up. Uh-huh. And I will misquote all of them. I probably remember <laughs> all of them and I will misquote them. But one of them is don't discover a subject of any kind. You know, this kind of skepticism of like this notion of like, you found it, go with like, it's, that's it. Um, and the, and other ones are like, you know, don't be seduced by the immediate things that always look wonderful in a painting. You have to wrestle. If it looks just like so wonderful and you're afraid to ruin it, it's cause it's not done. That's how the, undone things look yeah how much does doubt and skepticism and wrestling inform your work um uh, you have to wrestle and be skeptical about the question in order to yeah, appropriately yeah, answer of course it. <laughs> I do. well you know it's interesting that part of the process has abated in a significant way and I can pinpoint when the birth of my daughter changed the way that I work in the studio. I became more focused on decisions. And when things are unclear, I am more likely to just be okay with doing something else. The first series of work that I made after she was born was like 15 paintings. They were all planned out. I knew exactly what they were going to be. It was great. (laughs) It was like... It was such a relief to be relieved of the doubt of this image or that image, this big or this big color palette, right? In sequence with what? Installed with what? And part of that is it's my interest is like I, you know, I was talking before about this notion of the archive and I'm really interested in the ideas of paintings or or any artworks functioning as constellations. So you have works that have a certain distance between them and meaning is made in the space between the works. Right, right. But I'm not answering your question, which was... About doubt. Doubt. And, and skepticism. And skepticism. And well, you know, I think I've, in a healthy way, gotten some space from sort of the, the, the self-doubt or, you know, the, the, the cliches of, uh, you know, of course, painting is dead and what can you still do with painting? And I still have a healthy skepticism about, you know, when something is just an image. I mean, there's certainly a highly critical... And self-critical thing going on in the studio. But I'm interested in doubt. And I think I found a place where it's productive, which is around, I'm really interested in images that are reticent. Talk about that, please. So for a long time, although I've made very different kinds of series of works, there's kind of a consistent thread, which I think about as reticent kinds of images, which are images that do not reveal themselves or give themselves fully. Yeah. <laughs> so in that, there's a, there's a notion of slowness that happens. And the slowing down 
is an important dynamic for me. I mean, painting is, in the traditional sense, painting is a much slower activity. It's a slow way of producing things. And likewise, that translates to, or I often hope that it translates to a slowing down of beholding, right? Or of viewer's experience. So the reticence is like, that's the doubt built into the work. Huh. So that the work, it's not doubt, is this a good idea or am I any good or should I continue with this or, or continue with that? It's more like, I want everything to sort of pose a question and be an invitation. But at the same time that it's an invitation, it, it's not like, it's not a spectacle, right? Yeah, that, it, that, that there, there are complications and there is some stumbling and there are incongruities and things are not what they immediately seem, right? So like another theme, so I'm really, one of the things that's consistent in the work is the idea of reticence, you know, and that goes back to Bill Evans too and Raymond Carver, right? So I'm very much for, I guess I'm, if I'm going to, if I'm going to fly a flag, it would be for (laughs) the poetics of reticence. I like quiet things. I like things that don't reveal themselves fully. And yet you hang out with me. <laughs> a brash, bald Semite who chooses to be nothing but an open book with you. <laughs> counterpoints. You also said you're interested in counterpoints. Yeah, so. <laughs> counterpoints. Yes, yeah, so reticence, quiet. Yeah slowness like these are values that are important to me just to me in painting there's a lot of great painting that's about speed that's about over the top loudness intensity and i like looking at that stuff but my interests are are quieter is that what you seek from your time in this studio is reticence and slowness and questioning. Is that something like a description of what you want your studio space to feel like? No, I don't think so. I want the studio space to feel functional. I want it to work. I want it to keep me moving. Okay. It's more about what the work does when it's on its own. Gotcha. So then let me ask you, what is it that you want your studio space to look and feel like, if not questioning and humble and reflective and and slow? What does your studio space look like and what does it feel like when it feels functional and good? It goes into a place of chaos and then I really need it to be clean, you know, uh, I'm not one of those artists that keeps like like that impeccably clean studio, but that's sort of where my heart is. Yeah. That's when I feel the most clarity. Like I need clean spaces. Some of the work that I do gets fairly messy and, and I don't have a lot of space. I don't have a huge studio these days. So 
things get all over the place and in the way and it's part of the process. But, you know, I mean, I've had so many studios over the years and I feel lucky that the, the particulars of the studio don't seem to matter as much as they used to. There's a lot less, I need it to be this way before I can work or I, I need all of this preparatory stuff or, you know, my practice used to be, you know, being in the studio and drinking some beers and, you know, like all young painters, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, but all of that is really, you know, it's just work. It's just going in and producing work whose first purpose is to be something to look at for me. Hmm. Right. So the first thing is how am I experiencing this thing that I'm producing? And I, I think I'm able to get there pretty quickly. And so the space itself, I don't share the space. So there's no sort of interruptions. I don't have Wi-Fi, So that's also not an interruption. Uh, I listen to music usually, or sometimes something very quiet. So, all of the pathos around the art studio has been kind of mopped out of it for me at this point. Yeah. All for the better, I suppose. Yeah. To the wind with it. Just a silly small question. As someone who grapples a bit with a ritual, do you have any rituals around your studio time? Is there something that you tend to do when you show up? Is there language that you use? Are there thought processes, devotionals, you know, like, is there anything that you do? Because I don't want to oversell it. And I know you're going to laugh at me for saying it, but there is something sacred about the space. And I wonder if there's anything that you do when you show up in the studio to make it feel good to do that work. It's so interesting because it just occurs to me that as you're asking that question, I'm so fascinated with public spaces and the sort of intricate and elaborate feelings that something that exists in urban space gives off. Yeah. And the studio space is, has sort of none of that huh. at this point. You know, uh, it's the things that are being produced in the studio that, for me, are are doing the thing. I don't want to talk about studio spaces forever. I get the point. They're supposed to be largely functional and clean. <laughs> Ish. Ish. But I know that you love to go to the studio. And I know that you cherish your time at the studio. And so I really want to know what a good day at the studio feels like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's about being, being deeply engrossed in activity, you know, and so deeply engrossed, it's a different kind of activity, you know, so I think I can get really involved in other things, like I can get very involved in writing, I can get very involved in reading and thinking, I can get involved in music, but there's something that happens when I'm deeply engrossed in making something that 
language disappears. I mean, in that way, it's really close to a meditative practice because you are completely focused on manipulating some paint, some color as the Germans call paint, but also color, right? So you're manipulating these materials to get them to do what you want them to do. And then sometimes they do something you don't expect. And that's kind of amazing too. I, I think what I love about it is just the feeling of working. It feels more productive than any other kind of work that I do. Although I think I probably do lots of other things that are uh, more productive. <laughs> but that's its beauty, right? Right. So that's its beauty, is that it's work, it's productivity, but it's not trapped, at least for me, in, 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 in the way my relationship to the practice and to my career, it's not stuck with what work and productivity typically mean in our world today right i'm really interested in creating a space in our lives that isn't boxed in or otherwise dominated by language and i'm going to confess to you that i'm finding myself a little bit envious as you describe like how a good day in the studio is in some way defined by doing valuable work or just maybe doing work that's separate and distinct from language. And I have the sense that that also has something to do with altering your conscious mind. And I think anyone who engages in a creative process, a creative pursuit, has to deal with the problem of consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about the problem of consciousness in your practice? I could give it a stab. Yeah, stab away. Um, Well, you know, I think the realities of the practice, at least my practice, but probably a a lot of artists that I know, there's two activities for me in the studio. There's two ways of being. One is to be in the making of something. So really immersed in making and just like the way that a chef on the line is immersed in process. They're not coming up with a recipe. They're following a set of procedures and they're attentive to what's happening so that they're getting the results that they're kind of after. Mm -hmm. And so that is a pretty unconscious, like in the zone mindful kind of space to be in. Whereas the space of contextualizing what you do and reflecting on it, looking at it, you know, I spent a lot of time in the studio just sitting in a chair looking at paintings. And some of that time is much more like full of conscious thinking, critical thinking, sometimes rational thinking, although... I try to avoid rational thinking. <laughs> it's wise I think it's move, way yeah. overrated. Yeah, wise move these days. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not in favor of irrational thinking. I just, I, I'd like to put some skepticism into rational modes. Yeah, there's limitations to the rational. Right, because, I mean, 
what I would posit as an alternative is elliptical thinking, right? And so that things roll in a way and they, and they coalesce and they disperse and they're juxtapositions. And there are all of these really rich kinds of relationships that if I were to be in the studio and in a fully rational mind trying to engage, well, what does this do and why, I'm going to miss out in my mind on what I'm after. Right. And so do you find yourself kind of toggling back and forth in a way, fading in and fading out perhaps into and out of a conscious mind into and out of a phase of criticality? Yeah, I think you have to. It's essential. Yeah. You know, and, you know, that comes back to thinking about what it's like to look at paintings, you know, because what, you know, in working with students, one of the things that is hardest for them to understand is that they need to spend so much more time just looking at what they've done or what a painting is, something that's finished or something someone else made. There's two kinds of looking that happens in the studio. One is disinterested looking, which is to be deeply involved in just an experience of the visual, right? And just seeing where that takes you, where your mind goes, what associations you're making, maybe retinal things that are happening, but it doesn't have to be, you know, sort of the experience. And then the other is sort of a more conscious contextualizing, you know, much more aligned with uh, what we teach as contemporary art, right? right. Like right. approaching meaning and the difficulties of meaning and all of those things. But I'm really interested in the former of these because I'm really interested in that experience of uh, looking at a painting and just being open to an experience. For me, the thing is, I mean, paintings are more interesting to look at than lots of other things, but you can have this experience with anything. Right. So you probably know that one of my favorite things in the world is walking around our fair city of Berlin with you and just trying to see our city through your eyes. Because it does seem to me that you have created a space for yourself. You allow yourself the the luxury, perhaps just the dignity of actually looking at things. Yeah, I think that's all I wanted to say. I think there's something dignified in that. Mm. You know, I, I I love those walks. We've been doing these walks for many years now. And, you know, maybe this is connected to the idea of disinterested contemplation. To notice, to be open. And walking is such a kind of revolutionary practice for that purpose. Because you're immersed in a changing field of vision, right? So your, your viewpoint is constantly unfolding. It's constantly shifting. And you can get really absorbed in, in, in just the experience of it. 
You know, it seems to me that at the core of your project is the ability and the willingness to wholeheartedly and with wide but not always bright eyes mind your surroundings. You slow down and you look, usually without judgment, often in awe. You take in the city. You know, you and I share innumerable experiences where you stop to explore otherwise unremarkable tiles on the exterior of like an otherwise perhaps nondescript building. These are tiles that arrest very few passers-by. But you give yourself license to look, to observe, to enjoy them. Yeah, there's a, there, you know... So another really important painter for me is Giorgio Morandi, who's, um, you know, mid-century, I think he worked from, you know, end of the First World War through the 60s or something like that. But, you know, and he lived in Bologna and he, he was a great printmaker. He lived in this apartment and he had a little studio there and he painted bottles and he painted the same bottles forever. <laughs> you know, for 40 years, he painted these bottles and some landscapes of the Italian countryside. He painted these bottles in different arrangements to create still life paintings uh, that were full of hesitancy in his mark that are relatively reduced in their color. So they're pretty quiet that are the moves that are made in these paintings, the decisions are subtle and sometimes revolutionary, sometimes shocking, sometimes incongruent. It's, it's amazing to go to his, you can go to his museum and see this, they've preserved part of the studio. And it's, you just see these dusty, you know, these dusty bottles that he felt was worthy of his attention. And he's an interesting artist because you look through the century he lived in and everything that was happening around him. And he's painting these bottles and he's, I mean, he was very politically involved as I understand. He's a very politically involved figure at the university but the paintings are about a revolutionary approach to looking, what it means to look. You know, if you take, if you reduce and reduce and reduce to where you only have a few things to consider, and then, you know, the possibilities open up, you know, through that process of reduction. There's a really interesting lecture uh, that I discovered given by the American writer Siri Hustvedt about Mirandi. I mean, I've been looking at Mirandi for years and years, but listening to this writer talk about how these, through such minimal means, so much can be accomplished. And then, you know, you, you think about how, what that says about a studio practice and this practice of making paintings of seemingly 
insignificant things that then can take on another kind of life. You know, but Mirandi's one of these painters, painters, right? So there's there's a list of these these figures who matter immensely for painters. Right. And then for others, it might seem more quizzical. Why? Well, let me ask you a question about that, because not so long ago, I was talking to a pal of mine, the poet Josh Weiner, and I was asking him about this line from the Jeffrey Eugenides book, The Marriage Plot. And one of the characters in that book said that books aren't about people, books aren't about characters, books are about other books. And I was asking him the ways in which that may or may not be true of poetry. And so he gave me like this characteristically poetic answer because that's just Josh and that's how he rolls. And in that answer, he said that on some level, painting is just about paint. It's about painting. Relative to our discussion about consciousness and our discussion about the influences that painters have, how is painting kind of like about paint? You know, it's, it's, it's the problem of influence. Well, it's not the problem of influence, but it's linked to those ideas. Yeah. Right? So uh, we live in a time where we accept that all work is in conversation with other things, right? So and everything we, And we is, accept that for, for, for the better. Yeah, for sure. Right. I mean, that's what it means to be contemporary, for sure. That's one of the things it means. And so everything is, is in dialogue consciously or not. So there is a way in which I think any of these, any, any of the arts are aware of their histories. And, you know, with some exceptions, which are really interesting, we, we have an expectation that an artist is making work and is aware of those, those histories. But at the same time, work needs to not only be that, right? That becomes a trapping. You know, I, I went to liberal arts university in the 90s. I came of age in a time where that was essentially what cultural production was. It was all the riff, right? And the theory around the riff, which is all very interesting to me. And there's a problem when things don't assume some space for some autonomy. And I'm not making the case that art should be autonomous, right? I'm not making that case. But I think, I guess my perspective on it is if it's going to do something that is really exciting or that grabs a varied audience or that resonates, it's going to need to do that in ways that are not prescribed by history and the history of the medium. I'm really interested in this idea in terms of art education the public is very skeptical of art. I suppose the public always has been, but 
certainly from the 90s, the skepticism and the controversy, at least in America, around art and this idea that art is inaccessible because if you don't know the history of it or you don't know how to contextualize it, then you don't have anything to go with. And, you know, this translates into a mode of art education that is heavy on wall texts, that's heavy on isms. <laughs> yes. That's heavy on things that I don't think really matter unless you're deeply enmeshed in the world. And of course, it, it matters because it's language, right? So it's language or it's rhetoric or however you want to think about it. It has its own setting, right? Which is important to know. But, you know, I think about the joy of reading a novel without having to, you know, when you're a student, you have to write a paper about the novel. And comparative literature and, and practices around literature are different than reading. And art history and cultural criticism is different than looking at art, or can be. You know, there are different ways and different modes. But, you know, my practice is very informed by art history. I'm really interested in, and I mean, I'm probably... For someone making this case, I'm really digging my own grave right now because actually, <laughs> if you go to my website and you look at my work and you read what I write about the work, you'll see that it's pretty much about the history of art. <laughs> but I love when people see the work and come to the studio and or collect the work and have a relationship to it that's other. Because when I'm looking at the work or other work that I love, that's important to me, I'm not mining those pathways. I'm aware of them. I can choose to turn that on and understand, you know, Terry Winters had this apparently incredible show that just is closing. I'm not going to see it before I get to New York, but you know, Terry Winters, we can look, you can look at his paintings and you can make connections to the, the last paintings Duchamp made. Is it interesting? Kind of. Cause I, there's this one Duchamp painting that I've always loved that's connected, but, or, you know, you can make other connections, but it doesn't, I'd rather just go see the painting. And if I'm in front of it, I'm going to do my damn best to just be with this thing in its mystery, in its incongruities, in its weirdness, in its corporeal presence, its scale. I mean, that's what painting is. And that's what we lose when we're scrolling in Instagram. We're not looking at paintings. I don't know if it's an irony or not ever since that Alanis Morissette song. I kind of forgot what <laughs> irony is. But I think that you and I share a love for 
and probably a healthy skepticism for language. There are limits to language, and I think you know that better than I do. I pretty much hang my hat on language. Despite that, I have a really long question for you that's wrapped up in language. But I'm going to have to ask you to, like, dance with me a little bit here. Yeah. Like, you're either going to love me or leave me for giving you what is by <laughs> far, like, the me. longest wind-up in the history of this podcast. And I promise you that if I found a better path, I would have tried to take us on it. So stay with me, okay? Yeah. Okay, so the word gesture derives from two Latin words. Uh, the first is gestura, meaning bearing or way of carrying or mode of action. And the second is gerere, uh, which is the infinitive form, which means to carry, to behave, to take on oneself, to take charge of, to perform or accomplish. Okay, so that's where gesture comes from. And then according to the Oxford English Dictionary, Gesture as a noun, it signifies a manner of carrying the body, grace of manner, an attitude. Or as a verb, to order the attitudes of movements. All right, so a way of carrying, to behave, to take on oneself, to perform, to order the attitudes of movements. With all of that in mind, I'm wondering if you can talk about the role of gesture in your practice. Hmm. What's really interesting to me about the set of de definitions is the connection to the body. And for the last year, I've been really interested in how much really fascinating writing and theory is coming out around notions of embodiment, right? From the political moment that we're in, how different bodies have experienced different traumas historically, how things get embedded into bodies, histories embedded in bodies, our experience though we try to avoid it, is rooted in our bodies. Practices that people seem to be moving towards that are about returning to one's body in this time where we're totally disembodied in so many aspects of contemporary life. And so, I've, I mean, I really just am constantly interested in how often the body is reappearing as if we'd forgotten that we had them, you know? I think that's an interesting part of gesture because gesture, as I think of it, is a trace of activity of a body in space. And so the gesture that I've been exploring for the last two years is the gesture of a graffiti writer, an anonymous, I mean, they don't think they're anonymous, but they're pretty much anonymous. Except, you know, they're also a closed circuit, right? So they know who each other is. I'm not a, a, a fan, per se, right? So I don't follow the trends. 
But I'm interested in these marks that are all over the city that when I first moved to Berlin with an American sensibility, I thought, this beautiful European city has been ruined. (laughs) You know, it's like like these beautiful neoclassical buildings. You know, I was very into neoclassical buildings, I guess, at the time, because we used to call it Europe stuff, you know. That Europe stuff, it's ruined by graffiti. But what's interesting to me is that these gestures, these very speedy gestures that somebody makes as a way of marking territory and inhabiting the city, laying claim to the city, making markers in the city, in a way like creating a different kind of map of the city, right? They're spreading this, the tag over and over everywhere, So it's recognized as kind of territories. And I also think it's really quite interesting because it's it's a real affront to to private property and capitalism and capitalist kinds of engagements of the city. But it it comes back to this thing of this of them being gestures, of bodies leaving traces in spaces. I don't mean for that to rhyme, but Bodies leaving traces in spaces. And so what I do, what I've become interested in, is replicating. I I talk about it as transcribing it. I like the idea of that I've been making paintings which are transcriptions. So they're transcriptions of these very fast marks that are made with markers or diamond cutters or brush pens that are incredibly complex because they are gestures and they are records of movement. And the movement of the body is so nuanced. And if you put a brush or a pencil or anything in a hand that's moving, you'll get a totally unique kind of mark, right? And so I've been interested in taking these very fast gestures and slowing them down by replicating them painstakingly in, in a process that involves layers and layers of paint to create a kind of simulation of that mark on a bigger scale in a different context to talk about action painting yes. and the gestures of the big painters, Franz Klein and Pollock and... De Kooning. Mm. So this might be a bit out there, but if I weren't such a direct beneficiary of your omnicompetence, I would find it <laughs> dreadfully annoying. You talked about being a pianist, and while you were humble about it, I love hearing you play the piano. You're a surprisingly decent guitarist. You're an amazing cook. You're a bit of a carpenter. It's quite impressive what you can do. And all of this is true. And you don't have to respond. Um, It's hard for a good man to hear that. (laughs) I'm a terrible carpenter. But here's my question. How does your attention to gesture impact these pursuits? Because I have this sense that while there is a certain, like, mindlessness to it, that there's a certain unconsciousness, there's a certain like woo way to it all. There's also, perhaps paradoxically, a very attentive side to it also. 
I'm interested in your thinking about gesture as a painter, a pianist, a chef, a carpenter, a father. I think we come back to the thing that I forgot how you posed it, but Dizzy Gillespie said writing about music is like ornithology for the birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think if you think about gesture, it doesn't happen. That's the beauty of the gesture of the graffiti writer is it's fast. And so the thing is fluid. And if you tried to do that same thing in the context of, you know, the in- intensity and expectation of a painting where it would be the only mark, it would come with a different kind of anxiety. Yeah. Right. But I think it's interesting that you asked that question because for the last six, seven years or so, my, my intention as a painter has been to remove all gesture from the work. I've been really interested in removing without moving to a non hand based approach. I've been really interested in the idea of removing the notion of kind of signature brush stroke. So I've removed brush stroke from the work. This is where, you know, my practice is conceptual is they all look like brush strokes, but they're not. I go through a process to minimize the role of the hand in order to produce the thing that looks like it was made by the hand. And so in this way, I'm really interested in gesture, also the expectations of gesture. And I guess here, regrettably, I come back to the importance of the history of painting because the gesture is such a loaded, expected part of how painting is valorized is, you know, the hand, the touch, the mark. And so for the last six years, I've removed that entirely. It's starting to creep back in and I'm, you know, I'm reconsidering this kind of conceptual decision I made whether I'm ready to let things back in and for what reasons. But I'm really interested in that, in that way of producing painting that goes against the grain of its expectation. And I think in, in other realms, I think gesture actually comes back to the question that I think was really interesting that you posed earlier about decision-making. Because they're all a sets of decisions being made, right? And so as a cook and having worked in restaurants, there are decisions that you make that create a sensibility. I guess you could say that about a chef, right? Is a certain sensibility emerges. And same with artists, because it's about choosing. It's about choosing this over that. It's about what you collect and what you cull from the torrent of images and art that comes across our eyes and what, what you pull that you want to stick around with a little bit. I'm conceptually interested in the idea of the gesture as a kind of problematic, but choices and sensibility are what guide the work. 
Perfect. Thank you so much for that. So choices and sensibility in some ways speak to the problematics of it all. What would you pinpoint as the essential problem of painting? I don't think that I could say that there's an essential problem of painting in my mind. But in my practice, I would say that the central problem that I keep coming back to and I've come back to throughout my whole career has been the problem of the distinction between image and painting. Because images are incredibly complex things. They have historical resonances. They have specific contexts. They've been removed from their contexts. We come across thousands and thousands of images in the torrent every day, right? So images and image life is a very complicated space. And probably, you know, I think a space that Warhol really was effective in getting into and creating a whole new set of territories to explore vis-a-vis painting. And painting, as I understand the problem for myself, painting has to do something a little different with what in the end may be understood as an image, even though a painting is also a thing, right? But also increasingly, we encounter painting in digital spaces, especially with Corona, like we're all kind of walking through these made up spaces, looking at paintings, which are not paintings, which are images. The, the question of images has interested me so much for so long. And that's also where I become sort of untethered from painting. And I always have a foot in the world of the photographic image and images like the remembered image the way in which images are such incredibly complex phenomena. There's a brilliant art historian in the universe, at the University of Chicago named W.J.T. Mitchell. He wrote a book called What Pictures Want that explores in ways I, can, I can't begin to give you the argument, but that explore the complexity of the contours of how we experience images and that images themselves are like active, nearly living parts of our experience of the world. So you take an example, you know, to keep it really clear that everybody could see it. If I say Twin Towers, immediately an image comes into mind in a very complex image. And that image, if I had said Twin Towers before September 11th, 2001, there would also be a clear image, right? And the image has changed. But that image is so loaded with so much meaning and so much history and so many problematics. And that whole set of relations around images is really very fascinating to me. And for years, I, I was making paintings that were about 
that aspect of images. I was taking images and copying them in some capacity as, um, seems, seems to have been very much in fashion at the time, (laughs) you know, but I am like, I really actually also really love to think of myself as a copyist. Like I've always worked from photographic images and now I'm like copying gestural paintings made on the subway wall and bringing some awareness to these things as, as images. And that it's kind of getting at that same play. It behaves like a painting, but it's actually not a painting. It's also behaving like an image. And so I guess that's the crux of it in what I've been, the way I think about the work now is that it's striving as I've moved towards abstraction I'm moving towards a language that's more familiar to painting, but I'm still very much interested in these issues of the photograph and the photographic image and how those kinds of images function. And so I think that that question, if I were to actually finish answering your question, (laughs) I would say that the fundamental question that interests me in painting is what do you do with painting's relationship to images? Yeah. It sounds like you've walked a path, perhaps a winding one in an effort to fully grapple with that problem. And I wonder how your thinking about your practice has evolved over the last five or 10 years. I mean, so much has changed in your life in the last five or 10 years and really in all of our lives. And I wonder how your practice has evolved. The biggest change was certainly the birth of my daughter because it's not until you have a child that you realize how complex your relationship to time is. And when, as I say that, I think, you know, you know, you hear this before your kid's born. They're like, go do everything you can now. Cause you'll never have time. Yeah. Which is totally not true. You actually have huge swaths of time. One of the best things that I heard after my daughter was born was, the years go fast, but the days are long. <laughs> Truth. But, you know, initially the practice really shifted because I had really limited studio time and I needed to be very productive. I had to push doubt out. I had to push sort of, I actually I pushed a lot of the ritual out, you know, going out for the coffee as a break. I pushed a lot of things out and really made it be about being present in that space to do that work. And that this was kind of hard-earned time, right? And I wanted it to be useful time. And I think the other part is, you know, my daughter is seven, and I think there's a way in which you also feel the slipping of time. And you feel a different appreciation for time, and not just the free time, but like an awareness of time. And I think in conjunction with, 
you know, a host of other things that have happened in my life in the last six years since she was born, I've felt a really strong desire to be fully present in time as much as I can be. Um, which isn't just about being a parent, but is about, I, I, I fear that it has everything to do with being middle-aged. It does. <laughs> because <laughs> whenever I do mindfulness or meditation with my students, they always tell me, oh, my dad does this. <laughs> so I want to, uh, I'm, I'm also okay with this being a cultural phenomena yeah. around you know, a certain professional class and a certain urban, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. And it's also changed my practice because I stopped sort of going through this archive of photographic images from history and started collecting very much my own archive of my own time and my own spaces and my own way of moving through spaces. And I, I feel really lucky to have this practice because this practice has helped me to be more committed to my daily experience and has really sort of just transformed time. I gave a talk at a conference in London about working from the photographic archives of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the work was quite heavy, quite intense, um, but was really involved in problems of spectatorship. I'm aware and interested that I was consuming these images from the situation of an outsider reading a newspaper. And so I gave this talk. It was a really interesting conference about the use of photography and I think anthropological processes. There's this filmmaker there from Beirut who had made this film about when she'd first moved back to Beirut from London and there was a war. And the occurrence of a war is, a, as she explained it, is a, 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 a very potential common occurrence in Lebanon. She had made this film, and in the film we're inside her family's apartment, and we're watching the TV, we're watching the same footage that we'd be watching anywhere else in the world of the war. And she talked about how when you live in these places, there's an incongruity between, um, they also watch the war on TV. And the difference is the danger is imminent. But that, you know, in, if you only have the picture of the war, you don't have any sense of what quotidian life is like. And her film was really about quotidian life in the time of conflict right and i i had a couple conversations with her and it really i think encountering that work really set me on a different track around the everyday it set me on a track where i became 
more interested in not just sort of images out there that are part of this, you know, torrent of internet images and media images. And this is something I've been, I've been interested in for a long time, but I became interested in like, well, what does that mean for everyday practice? What does that mean for everyday experience? Yeah. And so I guess I could say that, you know, between the personal shift of becoming a parent and also confrontations with the intersection of the political and the personal and a shifting notion of time or appreciation of time has really altered what I make, how I make it. And I think what I want it to be able to do. So Benjamin, so much has changed for you over the last five or 10 years. You've got to experience the unmitigated joy of parenthood. You moved a couple times. And global circumstances have changed. And so it would make sense that your practice would evolve along with it. It would also make sense that you would look to your work as a way to engage with and perhaps even escape from the forces that make both of us feel anxious and insecure, frustrated, and in my case, I'll say angry. In an effort to find some breath, I've tried to spend more time at the piano. I've tried to sit down with books of poetry because I do believe that art heals. And I wonder how art heals you. I think it's an interesting question because art by its definition, doesn't have a purpose, is not instrumental. And yet, at least for people like me, it is essential. And at least for me, it's a particularly affirmative kind of space because it affirms agency it affirms voices. It affirms the presence of different perspectives and different languages. And increasingly, the voices that are represented in museums, in podcasts, in literature are expanding. And this is something that I think brings forth the possibility for art to do something more aligned with notions of healing. You know, it makes me think about this talk that I recently heard uh, with Teju Cole, the writer and photographer, in which he was asked this question about art and hope, right? And which implies, you know, I think if we think about healing, healing is 
a process towards greater health, right? It's a hopeful process, healing, right? That we, we come out on the other side better. And his response really fascinated me because he was really incisively said that he thinks much more in terms of notions of repair. And I think that this idea that art is a space where we could start to engage in really challenging process that are healings, you know, healing for me always seems to be sort of like a kind of mystical experience, right? Or a kind of like, like an expert comes in and heals. And the idea of repair is much more connected to an awareness around work and care and attentiveness. And I think I was really, I, I, I was really moved by that statement and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And so I think, I don't know that I would say that art is healing. I think art can have some therapeutic aspects, right? Particularly for people who practice it. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. While art might not heal, while it might not offer salvation, it certainly can be therapeutic. And it is indeed the case that part of the reason that I've been so enthusiastic to be in conversation with you on the podcast is that our long and beautiful friendship has proven to be therapeutic for me time and time again. You are a kind and wise and generous spirit. And that should be enough, my friend. Alas, I have to humbly request but two more favors from you. First, can you share with me a cultural artifact a poem, a book, a song, a, a, a film, uh, that a painting, of course, that somehow substantially informs your practice. I would be happy to. <laughs> the first one that comes to mind is Miles Davis's recording of It Never Entered My Mind. I'm not that nerdy anymore that I could tell you the time on the track when it happens. Uh -huh. But I think it's after the second verse, at the end of the second verse, Miles plays the line and he hits what is seemingly the wrong note. And then he bends into the right one. And it's really productive dissonance in a very slow lyrical ballad. It's my favorite note in all of music. Yes. I'll link to it. <laughs> <laughs> and I also I have a poem. Okay. Are you going to cull from the Raymond Carver lexicon? Yeah, indeed. All right, what you got? 
Oh, you're reaching for the phone. You're going to read this thing, huh? Yeah. Sweet. So the other thing that I'd leave you with as a cultural artifact is this poem by Raymond Carver that for me has always gotten maybe closest to what it means to be looking as we were talking about before. It's called This Morning. This morning was something. A little snow lay on the ground. The sun floated in a clear blue sky. The sea was blue and blue-green as far as the eye could see. Scarcely a ripple, calm. I dressed and went for a walk, determined not to return until I took in what nature had to offer. I passed close to some old bent-over trees, crossed a field strewn with rocks where snow had drifted, kept going until I reached the bluff, where I gazed at the sea and the sky and the gulls wheeling over the white beach far below. All lovely, all bathed in a pure cold light. But as usual, my thoughts began to wander. I had to will myself to see what I was seeing and nothing else. I had to tell myself, this is what mattered, not the other. And I did see it for a minute or two. For a minute or two, it crowded out the usual musings on what was right and what was wrong. Duty, tender memories, thoughts of death, how I should treat with my former wife. All the things I hoped would go away this morning. The stuff I live with every day. What I've trampled on in order to stay alive. But for a minute or two, I did forget myself and everything else. I know I did. For when I turned back, I didn't know where I was. Until some birds rose up from the gnarled trees and flew in the direction I needed to be going. Benjamin Ruboff. You read a Raymond Carver poem on the Studs podcast. <laughs> yes. Man, you are good stuff. Oh, but I can't forget. Is there a guest you would want me to pursue? It could be just a profession. It could be a person. I don't care. Just Can you get Teju on the podcast? Teju Cole? Yeah. yeah, I'll give him a call tomorrow. He has nothing better to do than to countenance me. I did listen to that Teju Cole talk that you had recommended. He's otherworldly, isn't he? Oh, my. Oh, my. So in the unlikely event that Teju Cole doesn't respond to my humble request to join me in conversation on this here podcast, who might you recommend in his stead? I have a dear old friend who lives in New Hampshire who has a business called Sash and Solder. And my friend Tom Driscoll restores stained glass and is very involved and interested in questions of restoration and preserving architecture and the way that things were built before. And I think he's an interesting one because he's the one who taught me how to walk through a city and really see what's there. And when the time is right, you'll put me in touch with Tom Driscoll? Yes. Thanks, buddy. Benjamin Rubloff, it has been a genuine pleasure. 
to have you on the podcast. I enjoyed every second of it. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. All right, my friends. That was me in conversation with Benjamin Rubloff. I told you, right? Kid is some other level stuff. And if you were listening and you were thinking, like, why would a sophisticated contemporary artist hang out with an unmasked clown like you, Lazar? You know, I have wondered the same thing. And I can only conclude, as I so often do, there is just no accounting for taste, my friends. Well, I promised you a song. And <laughs> while I am legit shaken with fear as I'm about to share it, whew, here's a song I wrote about my conversation with Benjamin Rubloff. It features drums by my dear friend of more than 30 years, Mr. Marty Konjoka. Love you, Marty. And it's produced by my former student and close friend, who just happens to be my guest on the next two episodes of For a Living, Mr. Brian Trahan. The song is called Giorgio Mirandi's Bottles. Okay. Here goes nothing. I pick up these fragments Just to slow us down And document our traces Never lost but found through the urban landscape to the studio for some space work until the voices one by one drift away the marks are here to stay and the rest all fades away Transcribe as gestures to give us some relief. Now I can't say what pictures want, but I'll tell you what I need the poetry of reticence and a certain ambiguity. are here to stay and the rest all fades away the marks are here to stay and the rest all fades while Giorgio Morandi's bottles flow placidly in Neptune's fountain mantra without words or counting and Etruscan elegy 
invite you to inquire Not everything's a spectacle Another dumpster fire So I'll sit quiet and listen Till the language disappears This may not be healing But it helps me are here to stay and the rest all fades away the marks are here to stay and the rest all fades away You know what I forgot to ask you? What? I don't know if it matters to you, but tell me. I know that a lot of what you do is very much in dialogue with our fair city of Berlin, and I was going to ask what the city of Berlin means to you personally and what it means to your practice. Uh, well, I mean, Berlin is an amazing city. It's an incredibly interesting city, and... Probably one of the things that interests me most about it is how the city itself is a kind of palimpsest of history, of rebuilding and destruction, right? The 20th century happened here. Everything of the 20th century seemed to have happened here in some capacity. So yeah, the city is, the city is fascinating. I find myself continually enchanted as I go about my days in the city, wander around the city, whenever I return to the city, I'm glad to be here in the city. I mean, my work is very rooted in this city. It really, cities are very much about their vernacular. And Berlin's vernacular is one that I've become intimately familiar with. And that's really interesting to me. Then do me a favor. And don't leave Berlin. You've already, <laughs> I believe in our friendship, you've left twice and threatened to leave a third time. So don't go. It's a perfectly good <laughs> vernacular for you. Let's just stay here. <laughs> Sorry. How can you do that? Like, when did you get good at that? Burping? 14? You want to know the history of my... Yeah, because it's feel like if we talk about burping, then I don't feel awkward if I sounded pretentious. Yeah. Which is like always the, it's the endless fear. Right. Well, the, the anti-intellectual strands of culture, you know, mainstream culture sort of pushes people with ideas into a corner. And the only way to fight out of that corner is to rip off the webs of pretentiousness, you know, and to fight through ego battles around mm. that. Mm. 
And I know that like any person who's a thinking person and or a creative person has to really combat the anxiety that they might endure yeah. because sort of like the waves of culture. Yeah, likely to sound like an asshole. Pretty much what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's okay. But if nothing else, you're my kind of asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll still love you, buddy. 